0: It affects, it affects our ministry, our mission in the world. Do, do we align with what is happening there? Do we align with what the convention is doing? Does it match what we believe about the scriptures? Does it match what we believe about our mission as a church? Uh, does, it, does it help us? Does that relationship help us?
1: Well, welcome back to Calvary Life Podcast. Uh, I am Charles Uptane. I'm Paul Thompson. And uh, we're here for another edition and uh, really excited about the the subject matter today. Um, We're going to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention a little bit. I know that may not sound exciting, uh, but there are things that we as a Calvary family need to know what's going on uh, with our convention. And the reason that we're sending 10 messengers this year to the convention, that's that may be a record for us, and uh, Paul uh, really made an emphasis on us of trying to get a group to go. So, Paul, why, why did you think it was important for us to go to this convention?
0: I think like a lot of other pastors do, leaders do in the convention, that this is a real crossroads year in the convention. Um, there, there's a lot at stake in this annual meeting, a lot of decisions to be made that I think are going to have a long-range um, ripple effect, more than a ripple effect, maybe even a tsunami effect based on what comes out of this convention. So I think it's critical. And uh, I really do. I think the, the convention is at a crossroads. As, as some pastors have said, the trajectory that we are currently on, I don't think is sustainable. It's not tenable. So th- something's got to give, something's going to give at this convention, or at least it's going to begin to give. And so for us at Calvary, I wanted our folks and our leaders in particular, to really be able to evaluate, to know what questions they should be asking, what information we should be seeking, uh, what concerns there are for our people. And uh, maybe we can use this, even our conversation today, just to inform and educate a little bit about our relationship to the Southern Baptist Convention, what it is and what it isn't, but also why, why every church member should be concerned. If for no other reason, and there are a lot of other reasons, this wouldn't be primary, but if you're a member of Calvary Baptist Church, then you know right off the top, we give 10% of our non-designated giving, of our non-designated gifts, to the cooperative program. Yep. The cooperative program is the means by which the Southern Baptist Convention supports its various ministries and entities. Now, the majority of that is going to go to- towards international missions, a little over 50%, I think, in total will go to the IMB. But still, there's that's a sizable percentage that goes to other entities like the North American Mission Board, or the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, or our seminaries. And so to know what's happening through those entities, what's happening with those funds, and what's happening with the convention as a whole is critical for us financially. But more than that, it affects it affects our ministry, our mission in the world. Do, do we align with what is happening there? Do we align with what the convention is doing? Does it match what we believe about the scriptures? Does it match what we believe about... Our mission as a church um, does it does it help us? Does that relationship help us? Yeah, you know we're we're different than other
1: denominations in that, and we've talked about you know uh, a top-down model versus a bottom-up model, and uh, we. Uh, or closer, I guess, to a bottom up is in that we are autonomous as, as a church. And so we make the decisions, our elders and our congregation has the final say on the decisions here. No board is over us, no convention over us like we might have in other denominations. Um, but we do choose to associate, choose to use our, our funding together to be able to do things bigger than we can do by ourselves. That's one of the strengths we have. I remember learning about that in seminary is just the, the strength that we have of the cooperative program of cooperating together in missions. One thing I would point out, you said a minute ago, fifty percent to international missions, but that's not really all international. You know, we we live 50% right at 50% in the state. Everything else is fifty percent. right. So that's right. That other fifty percent includes the seminaries. The you got the seminaries, you got the NAM, you got IMB and then all the other ministries. So so 50 stays around the state and helps us have state missionaries, which we partner with the Alabama Baptist uh, state board of missions. And then the other fifty goes goes outside the state.
0: So that idea of, of autonomy. Just so you know, as you're listening, you, you get what we're saying here. We use the term denomination, but technically speaking, the Southern Baptist Convention is not a denomination. We are a, we are an association of like-minded churches um, who voluntarily work together. And traditionally, the the cooperative program has been what sets us apart. It's what's unique about us and. Mm-hmm. And this whole system, this is one of the things I want to talk about in just a little while. The jeopardy, I'm afraid, that's in front of the International Mission Board right now, that they might get sucked into all of this as the whole convention recoils against where we're going, what we're doing, and giving begins to to decline, which I think it's going to if, if some changes don't happen. Unfortunately, will affect the greatest mission-sending organization on the planet. And so trying to differentiate between... What can we fully endorse without qualification? What do we question, and what are we considering not endorsing or supporting at all anymore? That's kind of what's in front of us. Yeah, so we have some issues. So let's let's jump right in. Um, the
1: first thing being one of the things I think that we'll see a lot of, and, and really started last year, was the controversy over Saddleback. So maybe with a give us a thumbnail of that, and what we expect to see it. At, about Saddleback?
0: Well, the short version is, if, you, if you've if you been watching some of this, you'll know already. If you haven't, Saddleback Church in uh, Orange County, California, was recently disfellowshipped, I guess would be the term from the convention, removed by the cred- Credentials Committee as a non-cooperating church because they have endorsed and ordained women as pastors, which is contrary to the Baptist Faith and Message um, adopted in 2016. Uh, 2000 the 2000 version of Baptist Faith and Message. Now, you know, there's so many ironies about this. For one, the vast majority of members of Saddleback Church probably didn't know until last year that they were even affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not something they ever advertise or uh, mention. It's not anything that's on their website. In fact, in the past, they've distanced themselves from it. I know there was an interview on NBC several years ago where uh, then-Pastor Rick Warren flatly denied being SBC, even though he's trained in SBC seminaries and part of the SBC, et cetera. So surprise, Saddleback members, you you were, and now you're not SBC. Um, of course, this is really just, this is the visible tip of the iceberg, though. Um, I was reading some statements made by Justin Peters the other day, where he talks about really the hypocrisy of this decision to remove Saddleback And the reason behind that, he said, is there are so many more SBC churches that are doing exactly what Saddleback has done. And are we going to take this issue seriously or are we not? So here's where we are on this. So Saddleback was removed um, as a member. They're now uh, contesting that. And so that, in some form or another— is going to be a subject of serious contention at this year's convention meeting next week because you have a large percentage of people—I don't know what the, if it's a majority, I hope not, I don't think it is—that are going to be supportive of Rick Warren and Saddleback Church and um, the ordination of and um, use of women as pastors in their churches, and they're going to defend that. Others are probably going to defend Saddleback's position just on the basis of local church autonomy— you know that'll be their their rationale. Um, convention can't tell churches what to do, etc. But the issue here ultimately is, you know, again, what the Baptist faith and message says, and the Baptist faith and message is actually fairly, fairly clear on on this issue. And so, um, that's what that's what our challenge is. So this is going to go to the floor. It's going to go to discussion. And you know, Rick Warren has a, a lot of sway, um, had a lot of influence on. Yeah, the church. we saw that
1: last year with his. Uh, mini-sermon that he got to give on the on the floor, which nobody else was given that much time at all.
0: No, if you ever go to a convention, and for these guys who'll be going this time, they'll find out just how hard it is to ever even get to a microphone to speak, much less be given multiple minutes just to speak freely mm-hmm. and uh, pontificate like Rick Warren did. I think Rick Warren's lasting contribution to the SBC is to firmly ingrain in Southern Baptist culture um, pragmatism as our yeah. guiding philosophy. I think the, the fruit of purpose-driven churches and the philosophy behind purpose-driven churches will turn out to be a, a blip on the long arc of the church, and an unhealthy one at that, that's led to all sorts of deviations. And And I think even with, with Rick Warren, as influential as he has been, and for all the good that he's done, if you look at the fruit, even at, at Saddleback, I would question the quality of leadership that's even there now. Um, they have a pastor and wife, uh, husband-wife pastoral team now, and um, well, I'll just... I'll just say their teaching is disappointing um, at, at best. So, so this is something that the credentials committee is going to have to to decide and determine what they're going to do. And so back in January they put together a study of it and then they recently decided before the convention that they would remove them. I think, Charles, and this is I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist here. I think the reason they did it before the convention. In committee is to force the issue to set Saddleback up well with the ability to appeal it, so it would go to the floor. I really think they want this to go. They want this to go to the floor, yeah. and whatever the outcome of that is, is going to be divisive. Yeah, as I was say, what's what's the outcome? Say that,
1: say that it does come to the floor, and the people, the messengers vote to take back Saddleback and basically wash away the idea that if you have women serving as pastors is that's a a break point, so to speak. Then what what becomes of the SBC with that?
0: Okay, well, let me start with a prediction. My prediction is that the convention as a whole is going to uphold it. Yeah. That's just my prediction. I think they'll uphold his dismissal, and then I think it's going to kick off a whole new series of of discussions about what do we do with all the other churches. And that leads me to another discussion related to this one is the Mike Law Amendment, um, which I'll talk about that in just a second. But um, if the convention upholds the decision of the Credentials Committee, you're going to have a lot of churches that are more progressive, dare I say more liberal, um, certainly different than our understanding of First Timothy and Titus and, and what the Bible says about women leadership and the history of our own convention, um, Orthodox Christian history. I, and I think that they're going to they're go with them. I really think... I really think what you'll see is a move by Rick Warren and others to set up an alternative. An alternative, I won't call it a denomination, but some sort of organization, some sort of entity that will say, come with me, come with us, disassociate yourself from the SBC or, or maintain a loose connection with them if you'd like, and come with us as we advance kingdom causes around the world this way. I really think that's, that's going to happen. You know, Rick Warren's got a website on this now. And these are some of his statements on his website is sbcstand.com which is interesting I did you know now he's become a sbc warrior which he hasn't been most of his life but here we are and he says every version of the baptist faith and message has called itself a consensus of opinion and repeatedly warns us it's not a creed to be used to enforce doctrinal uniformity or exclude members of our denominational family your own family members often hold opposing opinions but you don't disown them for that you still love them in spite of disagreements He says consensus means generally agreed on. It doesn't mean universally or unanimously agreed on. And then he makes this statement, which I'm sure resonates with with some folks. Um, He says, you know, we've been told since we were kids growing up in church that we have no book but the Bible, we have no creed but Christ, and he said, give me a Bible and I'll sign that as my authority but nothing else. Well, you know, that flies in the face of even what we do as a church here. I mean, we tell folks, even coming into membership here, why do we have a creed? We believe, we support, we endorse the Baptist faith and message, but we also have a a defining confession because we believe that helps anchor us to biblical truth. It It doesn't say everything the Bible says. It keeps us connected to what the Bible says. And also, we believe that creeds and confessions speak to the fact that no one believes just the Bible. They believe something about the Bible. We believe the Bible means something. And so I think when Rick Warren says that we have no creed or confession, but the Bible, that's misleading at best. And so in our confession, it speaks specifically to women as pastors, just as just as the scriptures do, just as the Baptist faith and message does. So, and if it's not, if it is upheld, I think you're going to see an Exodus on one side. If it's not upheld... I think you're going to see an exodus from the other.
1: Yeah, I don't see a good ending on both sides. And if not
0: an exodus, it's certainly a withdrawal of supports. I I really think one way or another, you're going to see some sort of smaller SBC after this. And and again, like I said, it's not just Rick Warren's church. There are over 170 female pastors currently serving in the SBC uh, right now. Yeah. You know, so the... The convention is going to have to do something, and that's why Mike Law, Pastor Mike Law, is proposing an amendment, which we won't know until this week. We'll know this week they're going to make a decision on whether or not his amendment is going to even make it to the floor. There were procedural issues, which a lot of people are very cynical about, skeptical about. Last minute, um, he had a deadline to submit this so that it would make it to the floor, and the deadline was May 31st, and the committee interpreted that as the beginning of the day on May 31st. (laughs) <laughs> Everyone else on the planet interprets that as all of May 31st. I think if you're a if you're a college student listening to this and your professor says your assignment is due June first, then I would say as a college student looking back at my college history, I would get that thing in at eleven fifty-nine PM oh, that on day. June the first. That's right. Not at you know, it's not you yeah. you understand what I'm saying. So we don't even know of his amendment. Over two thousand pastors have signed this amendment. Trying to get this to the floor. And uh, you know, I can tell you exactly what the amendment is about. If you wanna if you wanna understand a little bit of the law amendment, let's see, I wrote it down here. I got some notes. You hear me flipping pages here. I want to get this, I want to get this right. All right, so the proposed amendment would clarify that the convention only cooperates with churches that don't affirm, appoint, employ a woman as a pastor of any kind. And this would go into the SBC Constitution concerning composition. And so specifically under article 3 composition come down to the bottom church does not affirm appoint employ a woman as a pastor of any kind and that would determine according to the statement what the convention would deem to be a church in friendly cooperation sympathetic with its purposes and works and cooperating with the convention's governing documents so that's an amendment to the constitution we don't even know if that will make it to the floor hmm but that's going to be heated. You got over 2000 pastors, many of them are going to be there at that convention and if that doesn't make it to the floor, there're going to be there to be a lot of upset pastors. Yeah, because I've seen, you know, the the other thing is, oh, let's just let's kick the
1: can down the road, you know, let's study it. Exactly. Let's, let's another on, committee. Another committee to study this for another year, because that's one thing about the SBC, you know, we think of the Southern Baptist Convention as always being Happening, but really and truly, it only happens for those two days out of the year.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. It's not like all these things are being done all year long. Our real business happens just at these meetings. Uh, so, but I will tell you, if it gets if it gets kicked to committee, and we're going to have a, a committee again assigned to study what is a pastor. Yeah, really. Um, I think there are going to be a lot of disgruntled folks, including. Including yep. us.
1: All right. Well, let's keep moving as we look at some of the other issues. Uh, one that's really close to home with us is, um, you know, as we have a, our church planner in New York, Steve and Tony Chambers, um, who really we use Nam North American Mission Board to help us launch that church plan a few years ago now. Um, but even even back then, it seemed we 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 had some head scratching moments. So um, what do you, what do you say now about Nam and where they where they are for us as we look at our funding to them? Like we talked about, um, a portion of that fifty percent they
0: go outside of the state of Alabama of our 10% goes to NAM every year. Well, let me express this part more in questions and concerns than answers. And I hope to have some better answers um, when we get back from the convention, even when we get back from the annual meeting that we can talk about with perhaps a little more clarity. Now, my, my own personal experience has caused me to question some things. I know... With Steve in Manhattan, we, we've questioned why Manhattan being one of the critical SEND cities, S-E-N-D, not SEND cities, which it also is, but that's not a, an official uh, designation by NAM. SEND, where we're trying to designate our, our most support to in church planting, is that we've always been a little frustrated that it seems from our perspective that they've not gotten support we'd like to see yeah. from the North American Mission Board. And for you listening and for folks who support Steve and support Calvary, and through Calvary we support Steve, you know, it may surprise you to know how little um, support financially Nam actually does give them.
1: Yeah, and it's arbitrary. I mean, it'll just change. It's amazing how how the arbitrary nature of the support is. You know, it's crazy.
0: So on that, that's probably a separate subject. I have to talk with Steve about that. I'm you know I'm a little frustrated sometimes at where where that goes, but it it speaks to a bigger issue, and it's a concern that a lot of pastors have, and that is the lack of accountability. Yeah. Financially, when it comes to Nam, because here's the truth: we don't really know how their funds are used. We don't know what their resources are. Those that information is not given out. Nam seems to have one of the weakest trustee boards, and so um, this information we don't we don't know salaries, we don't know assets, we don't know expenditures. Um, we just don't know. We don't have a we don't have a clear picture of Nam. But what we do see on a practical level is a huge shift. From a bottom-up strategy, churches that work together with local churches and associations locally or work together with your state conventions, all of these things to plant churches, to do ministry in North America. If you're listening, and this is foreign to you, NAM is the North American Mission Board, to much more of a top-down, where now NAM is determining the church planning strategy everywhere, and it seems like state conventions are more and more being cut out of this process. I was talking with a, a convention leader Um, an influential leader in our convention in the Northeast, and consider just this anecdote, okay, just this informational anecdote. So the Baptist Convention of New England is a convention of six states. Obviously, there are far fewer churches in a much more unchurched area of the United States than we are here in Alabama. Uh, So one state convention or one regional convention covering six states A few years ago, Nam was supporting the BCNE, Baptist Convention of New England, with $1.5 million. In their most recent budget, that was reduced to Mm $150,000. Our association alone, just Saba, the Southeast Alabama Baptist Association, sends far more to the Northeast than North American Mission Board does. For the sake of training up pastors, planning churches, supporting gospel work there, so one hundred and fifty thousand in an area that is probably two to three percent unchurched, I think most people would find that unfathomable. So again, the question for Nam is going to be: we we need transparency. Um, we want to know, and you know, a bigger concern. I'm trying not to be pointed with folks, but Nam has given the impression in these in recent years of uh, providing quite a package of benefits, golden parachutes, if you will, um, to retiring ministers and pastors, and it just—it just seems like a system that just—it doesn't seem to be working well. And meanwhile, meanwhile, this we do know: more money is being spent in church planting. More money is being spent by Nam. Than ever before, by far, some of this data is just coming out. Dr. Chuck Kelly, former president, longtime president of New Orleans Baptist Seminary, he's just put together a book, which I just ordered today. It just became available this week, so I haven't read it. I know some of the information in it because I've talked to some of the people who are privy to it. And it'll just show that we're spending more, investing more, so much more going out with so much less coming back in return. Yeah. Fewer churches being planted, and we're seeing this troubling trend, Charles. And I'll move on to another subject. A number of these Nam Church plants that, after a few years, become, not surprisingly, I'm afraid, non-denominational, and they're not even Southern Baptist anymore. Yeah. And maybe they really n- never did share our our theology, our doctrine, our practice, our ecclesiology. So I don't know. So that's a big question. I think a lot of us are seeking transparency, clarity, information when it comes to North American Mission Board.
1: Yeah, I know. Even just anecdotally, some of the some of the church plants that I've heard about or been close to or seen, um, they don't look like us, you know, and it there doesn't seem to be much control over that. The things that we would think NAM would be helping so much with would be that would be doctrine and what what a Baptist church looks like, and uh, it seems to be far from that. It goes back to that pragmatic uh, kind of mentality,
0: I think, of church planning. Well, this is probably a whole nother podcast, and maybe this ship has already sailed. But when that embarrassing national campaign came out, the "He Gets Us" <laughs> campaign. Yeah. That most of us would just not endorse. I mean, most Bible believing, I think, Orthodox Christians would not endorse. And then, lo and behold, that one of the players behind it was our own North American Mission Board, right? Until it came out publicly, and they had to renounce it and, and backtrack from it, withdraw from it. But we just wonder, where's the oversight? Yeah. Who's who's approving these things? Who's saying okay to that? So, questions there. I, I put Nam in the question category. Yeah. All right. So another one, one that's kind
1: of been growing for a while, I think, in the convention is the the. I don't know what you'd call it—disparity or uh, distancing, maybe—of the ERLC from from most Baptist churches and our our thoughts and and, and things like that. So, what do you th- think we might see at the convention from that?
0: I think you'll see. I think you'll see a call. There'll be some sort of demand, maybe some motion from the floor to defund the ERLC officially. Um, well, tell us what that is first, because so, so the ERLC is. On a practical level, that's our, that's supposed to be our public arm. That's our, that's our public voice for government issues, social issues. Um, I guess if we had a, if we had a group that was advocating for us, we would hope advocating for causes that are important to us, social causes, justice causes. um, That would be the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. And so that's what we would hope. They are for us, speaking to the issues, to governments, to the public sphere that matter most to us. Yeah, I think of them almost like lobbyists. They should, I mean, in, yeah, in a good they really way, should I mean, they, they, should they should be. They are the lobbyists, are the lobbying arm. They really are the lobbying arm for the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. The problem is this they're not lobbying for the issues that matter most to us anymore. Right, yeah. And sometimes lobbying even against issues that do matter to us. Now, Again, I'm not expecting everyone listening to this to agree with me, but I am a proponent of the Second Amendment for a number of reasons. Well, it was troubling recently with events that took place and the horrific shooting that took place in Tennessee. But the response of the ERLC was about gun control and signing on to a, just a really a red flag law about gun control. We thought, wait, that's not the critical issue here. That that's not what's happening here. Let's deal with the, let's de- deal with issues of. You know, just so many other issues, sex and gender and and the war against Christianity that's happening here. But those were avoided when it came to COVID issues a couple of years ago and, and churches under great pressure to shut down and government interference, government overreach. We were looking to ERLC to speak up for us. They did not. Yeah. Um, Even the abortion issue. And when it comes to abortion, the majority of Southern Baptists, I, I, I'm not saying I can speak for everyone, but I firmly believe the majority of Southern Baptists are not for making abortions less necessary, as was the terminology of the ERLC a couple years ago. They want to eliminate this. Right. We we we're, we're abolitionists when it comes to this. We we want that done with. We we want to we want to see an ERLC that genuinely speaks for us. Um, and I just don't think they do anymore. And so I, I would join my voice to the chorus of those. Calling for defunding, though I don't think that'll happen. I think, Charles, you just watch for this at the convention. Some brave soul will get up on a microphone, and he'll ask some challenging questions regarding the speaker um, representing the ERLC when they give their report, or someone will call for defunding. They'll get booed. They'll get shouted down. And nothing will take place. But then there'll be hundreds of pastors and churches that'll leave this year's annual meeting, saying, "Okay, we're going to adjust our giving, and we're going to speak to our state convention, folks, and we personally are not going to contribute any more to this until there's a change." Of course, and that's what I would advocate for us. Yeah. So we'll see what comes with that. We'll see. Um, Another
1: big one that comes from last year, or even the last two years, is the um, the payments that are going to come out of the executive committee based on the the liability cases of sexual harassment. Um, so, what can we expect from from this, or will we see anything this this year?
0: Well, no, this is this is a huge one. Um, we saw some reports that came out recently regarding the executive committee, and and let me just clarify here. If, if you're not familiar, I don't want to assume you read some of the things that we do. We can be kind of in a small world here. What happened a couple? What happened a year ago or so is that by the wishes and and the. Messengers were persuaded to do this. There was a lot of pressure on the messengers to do this. And so it was kind of a circular thing. Um, The executive committee decided to waive attorney-client privilege. And all these issues that were coming out with sexual abuse or accusations and everything um, were supposed to be – this was supposed to be for transparency, et cetera. What happened was a number of those members of the executive committee – who said, no, we should never do this. We're setting ourselves up as just easy targets for so many different lawsuits, so much liability here that is not ours. And again, in case you're listening to this, don't don't read into this for a moment that I don't care about sexual abuse issues. What? Sh- how should a local church handle sexual abuse issues? Uh, we should call the police. Yeah. We should deal with those through the legal system that we have. I'm not dependent on the convention in any way to police that or monitor that for us. Right. I mean, I, you know, I appreciate there are systems of reporting that we share, but— You know, we we work through the legal systems that we have. And I think part of that that's important is the fact that we are autonomous.
1: And so that's what's made it hard to begin with versus where we've seen the Catholic Church and different things where they have this oversight. Right. We're not set up for oversight. We're expected to handle that within ourselves. Exactly.
0: And how do I answer to uh, someone who's been a faithful member of the Church for 50 years and given faithfully week after week after week when they read about lawsuits in the millions of dollars— Being paid out by our executive committee for some instance of sexual abuse that happened in some other organization affiliated with the convention, some other church having nothing to do with us, but indirectly, yeah, the money that they put in our offering plate is going to help pay for that. Yeah, you know, how do we justify that? That's and that's the sort of question that I think a lot of pastors are asking, and that's what's making the situation, you know, ultimately untenable. Um, I was speaking to someone who was a former member of the executive committee, um, and one of the things they told me is at any given time their assets were just in several million, five, six million dollars of assets the executive committee would have. Because their purpose is not to accumulate assets. Yeah. Their purpose is to be a pass through for other Southern Baptist needs and, and situations. This is just simply something that's just not possible to sustain with these lawsuits that are coming down. And so I think this is this is going to be you know This is going to be a critical, critical issue uh, you know, going forward with us. What we've seen are these statements. This, it, the executive committee itself has said the PATHRON is not financially sustainable. They're selling off assets, selling off properties just to maintain financial liquidity here. Um, again, something has got to be done. And this all relates to choosing this organization called Guidepost to represent us. Well, here's something ironic. After a year plus of working with Guidestone and their findings and their reports and everything, in the most recent court case um, involving Guidestone—Guidpost—sorry, gu- not Guidestone. That's where my retirement is. Yeah, Guide that's her Post, retirement. Guide was, Post, was sorry. Guidpost. Those are way too close for us to yeah. be able to not mess that up. Um, in the most recent court case, their documents, their information was was ruled to be hearsay, not admissible in court. So nothing that they have done. With the exception of the information we found out about Johnny Hunt's marital improprieties and now his lawsuit, which, by the way, he is now suing the executive committee because of the things that, that wow. Guideposts did. Yeah. I mean, this is such a quandary, such a mess. And you know, we're finding that all that information, all that money that we pumped into, the millions of dollars that we spent are really ultimately for naught. Yeah, and so you know, this is something that the that the convention is absolutely going to have to deal with. Um, One of our candidates for president this year, uh, who'll be nominated, is Mike Stone, and you know he wrote about this a little bit. This is what he said. This was in an interview. He says, "I felt that Southern Baptists were crystal clear last summer that we wanted." nothing more to do with guidepost solutions. So we we're shocked when this current presidential presidentially appointed task force announced in February that they were recommending yet another contract with Guidestone. And in the face of understandable backlash, the most influential defender of this decision is our current SBC president. He says we were told that Guidepost Solutions is the only corporation in America that can meet all our criteria. He said that fact alone should tell us we have the wrong criteria. Yeah. You can look up Guidepost Solutions for yourself. It is, of course, LGBTQIA plus affirming organization. Um, they've they've had clients as notorious as Harvey Weinstein, um, and now we're one of their clients. Yeah. They support those that are suit they they have clients that are suing us, and we're their clients. It's, it's really it's, it's, a, it's a quagmire I can't even get my head around. And he said, well, I'm grateful for the recent announcement that the task force will no longer recommend guidepost solutions. I'm disappointed that it took so long for them to do so. Yeah. But, again, where we are, some of these things are just – we can't continue on this path. Financially, it's not sustainable. Um, where are these millions of dollars going to come from? That's an answer that we're going to have to get at this at this next annual meeting. Yeah. If these lawsuits continue, we don't know what they're going, what they're going to do, uh, where they're going to go. Um, what the outcome is going to be, we're going to have to determine, what do we do? How do we continue? Yeah. Well, I, I know we're getting close on time. Of what we're going to wrap up with, is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we uh, close? One thing that will be interesting this year, I think, and it will be very telling, you know, in, in many years in the SBC, um, the presidency is not a hotly disputed contest, right.
1: especially not the second
0: year. Particularly not the second year, because it is our tradition that the second year is assumed. Yeah. You're elected one and typically people don't run against you have you know you're uncontested in the second year. So that makes this year very unique that someone who wasn't elected previously is now up for election again this year. And I think this one's gonna be very telling because the divide is very wide. And there was there was an article today, a post today. This is interesting, I'll close with this. This is from Willie Rice. Um, Willie's a very prominent pastor in Florida, and uh, I know Willie, and I've talked with Willie. um, I I think a lot of him, I I think of him as a man of integrity. He was on a different side of this presidential issue a couple of years ago and has shifted gears. And now, amazingly, he's nominating Mike Stone. And this is what he said— He said, in just a few days at our Southern Baptist Convention meeting in New Orleans, I will nominate Mike Stone to the office of SBC president. Such an announcement would have been unthinkable for both of us a short time ago. I wish the status quo were an option it's not. Now listen to some of the things he said in his statement. Why the change? Why now? I have reluctantly but clearly come to believe that our convention is facing an existential crisis that could irreparably damage our cooperative work. I'm not sure if on the present course the cooperative program survives much longer. Wow. And he says the sexual abuse reform movement began with the best intentions for most of us. But he says, I believe that the movement as currently engineered threatens the very fabric of our fellowship. And this is he references what I was talking about just a moment ago in the executive committee. He said, the recent, most recent audit of the SBC executive committee bluntly stated that our current course is financially unstable. We've drained millions of dollars given by Southern Baptist people for missions on unnecessary litigation and administrative costs because of our unwise approach to this issue. And so, you know, this is very interesting. And his this was his conclusion. I'm not reading the whole statement. I want to read the end. He says, while all these things are happening within, around us, our culture is imploding under the weight of a depravity that is nothing short of demonic. Yeah. We're facing not just a few headwinds, but a storm that will test us as never before. This is no time for the pastel colors of nuance. This is a time for the bold colors of conviction and courage. Our nation and our world need the largest body of evangelical believers in America to stand boldly united in sound doctrine and courageous convictions. The quiet parts have now been said out loud. This is unsustainable. The old alignments and descriptions are obsolete. A new and urgent hour is upon us. The time has come for a bold, if difficult, choice. The direction must be changed. The drift must be stopped. This is why next week I'll nominate Mike Stone to lead us as our next SBC president. What a bold statement. And, again, from someone who really was kind of on the other side of the aisle a couple of years ago. He was a big supporter of Ed Litton and his presidency, a supporter of Barber initially, but now seeing the reality of what's all around us, and I share the convictions Willie Rice. So those are some of our thoughts going in. So it'll be interesting when we come back next week from the convention, from our annual meeting, and have some thoughts and perspectives on conversations we have and what we learn.
1: Yeah, so we're uh, like I said, uh, largest, I guess, group of us going down there next week, going to New Orleans. And so we'd ask you to pray for us. We'll leave Monday, and then the convention is Tuesday and Wednesday, and uh, we'll come back Wednesday night. So just pray for us and uh, pray for wisdom. Pray for the, uh, the convention itself to be uplifting and uh, God-honoring in what we do and the decisions we make and how we um, kind of talk through these multiple, multiple issues. Yeah. All right. So we're going to close it right now. Just remember if you have any questions or something that uh, is on your heart about what you would like for us to talk about, you can email us at podcast at calvarydothan.com, and uh, we'd be glad to hear from you about that. And uh, also remember that uh, we as a church are uh, for God, for Dothan, and for the world.